Let me pray. Father, I think my one prayer this morning is the line of that song we just sang. Let us see the love in your eyes. Let us see the love in your eyes. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be speaking, sharing today. It's been a little while. Um, and what I felt to do this morning was really to share some of my journey over the last month with you. Dave texted me probably in February and said, can you preach in our Lent series and what about doing confession <laughs> and lament? And I thought, no. And then I thought, yes, I have to do this because, and I'm going to start with a confession, that I am a pastor that has avoided preaching about sin whenever I can. I don't feel very good about that, but it's true because for me, sin carries a lot of shame. And I've struggled over the course of my life to, to work that out. So I felt when I got this invitation that now is the time. God was like, now is the time, Kim. I've been kind of holding it there, but like now is the time. And I, f I feel that not just for me, but for us, just that sense that now is the time. Um, so what I want to do is I want to share um, really how God has met me in that journey over the last, I probably avoided it for the first month, over the, over <laughs> the second month, um, and leave you with two questions that I feel like the Holy Spirit has left me with to live into as we come into Easter. So that's where we're going to go. I want to start with a couple of experiences, just very briefly, that I've had. And then we're going to wrestle with a little bit of theology together. We're going to hear from a mystic, from a German theologian and from Jesus. And then I'm going to invite Shell and she's going to come up and join me and we're going to relive a conversation we had during the week as I was wrestling with how this takes place in our experience. And then I'm going to lay the two questions on you. Does that sound okay? Are you good with that? Okay. All right. So, three weeks ago, I was down and out with COVID, the dreaded COVID, and I fell into the inevitable Netflix binge, because what else is there to do when you're stuck in bed with COVID? And I started watching This Is Us. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's this like multi-season generational family systems drama, which is a kind of therapy in itself. So just warning you if you do decide to watch it. But anyway, in this family, they deal with all the issues over the course of the generations. And one of the issues that is really prevalent for this family is addiction. And so there's quite a lot of scenes where there's characters going to AA or NA meetings. And so I was just watching these meetings take place and just marvelling at the concept of AA and how it's taken traction in our world because it's based on these spiritual principles of owning your sin, confessing and expressing that in a community, um, making amends, um, relying on a higher power or God, being dependent on God for healing, 
and being part of a community um, and, and prayer. And, and I was like kind of marvelling how it's kind of taken off with believers and non-believers alike all across the world. Um, and then I, as I'm watching these scenes take place, I'm thinking, gee, like in the AA meeting, and look, I haven't been to one, so this is just, you know, from my experience in watching this show, but in the meeting there is this combination of truth and love that is really quite beautiful. You know, people are honest and they're met with compassion and support and love. And I thought, this is like church happening in this meeting. And then I thought, but, you know, I started thinking, if this is church and then truth and love and confession, but I thought, this, this meeting seems more vulnerable than what I experience in church, or what I have experienced in church a lot of the time. And so that was kind of just ticking away in my mind. Once I got out of uh, COVID ISO, I was, got out just in time to go and have dinner with some mums that I've been journeying with since Jesse was in kindergarten. He's now in year 12. So for 13 years, there's been a group of five of us. We met each other in the playground. We didn't fit in with any of the other mums, so we were kind of this misfit group that found each other, and we've journeyed together for 13 years, supporting each other in, in the mum life. But through that time, shared so many things together. And this group of women, I've never experienced a group like this where there is such a level of honesty and acceptance that you can just turn up and be exactly who and exactly where you're at. So we went over for dinner and we're sitting around a table with a cheese platter and a bottle of wine and this was the first dinner that we were going to have together since one of my beautiful friends in that group lost her husband really suddenly last December. And so I knew that it was going to be a big night. And so she came in and we sat down and we were like, how are you? And she said, um, I'm really just surviving. I can't even process that he's not here. I'm pretending that it hasn't happened. And then she went on to tell us, you know, how this was unfolding in their house. They've got three kids. And she cried and we cried and we were just present with her. And then after that, my other beautiful friend sitting across the table said, you know, in a different kind of grief, said to us, you know, I'm, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do that dry July thing. Uh, well, more than that, actually. Um, I'm getting ready to, to give up alcohol because my drinking's really out of control and it's scaring me. And so then my other friend over here said, I've been there and proceeded to share her story. And around the table we went and we had this really honest conversation about alcohol and how we use it in our lives. And I drove away well after midnight from this intense evening and I noticed that my heart was full. And I just felt so grateful that I was in a part of this group of women 
that could be so honest and open and present to each other. You know, it felt like a holy moment. And then I thought again, it, it felt holier than some Sundays when I leave here, if I'm honest. What, what is that God? And that was ticking over in my brain. I want to read, actually, just before we move on to the next part. Um, my friend who lost her husband, she sent us a message late that night, and it just said, thank you. And it had this poem attached. When you meet someone deep in grief, slip off your needs and set them by the door. Enter barefoot this darkened chapel, hollowed by loss, hallowed by sorrow, its grey stone walls and floor. You, congregation of one, are here to listen, not to sing. Kneel in the back pew, make no sound, let the candles speak. Beautiful poem. All right. Let's take a breath and we're going to move to part two. I need to get my water. And I need a couple of volunteers. Fredo, can you, would you come and help me? I promise it won't be too scary. And um, Donna, can you, can you come and help me? Can you just sit maybe there? Yeah. And Donna, Donna, if you sit there, that'd be good. Hey, Donna. Hi, Brad. So... Chrissy sent me a text when Lent started and said, Kim, what are you giving up for Lent this year? And I was like, oh, I'm not, I don't know, I don't, I'm not thinking about it. <laughs> and um, and when, when she sent me that text, I felt God prompting me not to give up something external but something internal because I've been wrestling a lot with self-doubt this year and that's been causing me a fair bit of anxiety and so I felt this prompting like, you need, you need to let some of this go. And so I thought, I don't know how I'm going to just stop doubting myself. <laughs> so I remembered, you know, the scripture that talks about perfect love drives out fear and felt this invitation from God to really lean into love and that, that it would eventually help me. And so I ordered a book that I'd been wanting to read for a while and it's called Revelations of Divine Love, and it's by a 14th century mystic called Julian of Norwich. And um, she lived in medieval England. She was part of the Catholic Church, and she knew what it was to suffer. She'd lived through three um, waves of the Black Plague, and... Um, at 30, she was on her deathbed, dying, to the point that they called the priest to do her last rites and all of that. And she had this vision of the passion of Christ, of his death, that was very vivid and very graphic when you read about it. There's blood spurting all over the place. And, and then she went on over the next two days to have 15 more sort of visions and insights from God. And afterwards, she didn't die, and she wrote them down very briefly. And then she spent the next 20 years unpacking and trying to interpret those visions. And she ended up becoming an anchorite, I think that's how you say it. So she 
got herself bricked into the wall of the church. So they made her a cell, bricked her in. She had a window on one side so she could look into the church and be part of the mass, and a window on the other side out to the community. So she spent the rest of her life in isolation, pretty much, um, in solitary prayer. I think she used to sew and do things for the community and giving spiritual direction to the drunks and everyone else that walked past the window. This was her life. Um, pretty crazy. Anyway, so I started reading this book of Julian and I didn't know a lot about her other than she talked about love. But I was soon to discover how radically optimistic her theology was, especially in relation to sin. And um, when Julian asked God to teach her about the troubling issue of sin, all she was shown was love upon love upon love. And this really caused her a lot of conflict because it was kind of clashing with the teaching that she'd grown up with in the church. And she says this, I know without doubt we are guilty of missing the mark all day long. I cannot let go of my belief that we are blameworthy, but I do not see you, God, showing us any kind of blame. How can this be? So she ends up concluding this. She says, sin is no thing. Sin is no thing. And I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> she says this, I did not see any sin. I believe sin has no substance, not a particle of being, and cannot be detected except by the pain it causes. It is only the pain that has substance for a while, and it serves to purify us and make us know ourselves and ask for mercy. Well, this reminded me of a quote by Richard Raw. I'm sure Jen's shared it here before, and it's, we aren't punished for our sins, but by our sins. So I wanted to share a couple of Julian's insights with you today for us to wrestle with a little bit. Um, and I was trying to figure out how to do that because it's pretty rich and dense. They're not easy to read, the mystics. So I'm going to have a go here <laughs> with this little experiment. Don't get nervous, it's okay. Um, <laughs> and let's, hope it, let's see how we go. If it's really awkward, I apologise up front. So Donna, you are going to be God. You're God. Okay. <laughs> and all you need to do is to sit here and I want you to try to generate all of the love and compassion and mercy of God and just send that energy and your loving gaze towards Brett. That's all you've got to do. I know it's going to be a little bit awkward, but I, I, you can do it. Now, Brett, <laughs> you are human. Definitely. Beautiful creation. <laughs> and you're going to sit here, but you're really representing all of us. So you're going to see yourself in Brett. Okay. And I'm going to take on, you know, the voice of Julian, and we're going to work through this a little bit. So Julian says that God showed her that he is the ground of love. He is absolute goodness, true righteousness. He is shaped by love. He is the shape of love. He is full of compassion and mercy, overflowing with goodness, and he gazes and sends all that love in our direction. He is the ground of love. He is the creator of love. He is the sustainer of love. He protects by our love. 
by his love. He is love. That's what she saw. Humans bred on behalf of all of us are human. They're made by love, they're made in love, they're made for love, but they're human. So they have within them the divine light of God, of Jesus, and the misery of Adam, all within. They're frail, weak, and humans get tossed around by this world. There's toil, there's suffering, there's the transgressions, our, our own sin and the sin of others, and we get knocked around by that, and we get overwhelmed by that at times. Humans are walking contradictions. Brett, you are a walking contradiction. You know, there's like light in you and there's shadow. Sometimes you're living in God's love and mercy and there's days. Sometimes you're living in God's love and mercy. Your eyes are locked with the ground of love and there's other days where you lose sight of that love, peace and mercy. And you stumble and you fall and you fail. God is love, we are human. Mistakes are inevitable. This passing life does not require that we live without sin. He loves us endlessly and we miss the mark constantly. We get off course. Last Sunday, I was reading about Brian Houston in the paper sure some of you have as well. And I was reading about how they were calling him out because he had condemned Carl Wentz, another leader in Hillsong, for his sin. And now he was stumbling himself. And I don't want to excuse any behaviour or minimise the impact of the pain of that. But I do want to say that in the church, in me, in you, and especially in our leaders, sin is allowed here. Sin and sorrow are allowed here. I read that article of Brian Houston, and I thought, this is a man that wasn't allowed to sin. And that just doesn't make any theological sense to me or to Julian. <laughs> So God is love, we are human. God is always friendly. His judgment, your judgment, God, <laughs> is gentle and kind and true because God perceives the inner man, the heart, the spirit. We, human, Brett, you, you, can be mean. Sometimes your judgment is gentle and kind and you perceive the inner man but other times you get distracted by external appearances, by other people's opinions, and you judge yourself or others harshly. You get angry, God never gets angry. What happens when you get angry 
and you get frustrated with your own sin, with others, with the sin of the world, is that we can start to really judge ourselves and be harsh on ourselves. And we can say things like, I can't believe that you've been unfaithful again. I can't believe that you've fallen over. And we can be quite mean (laughs) to our own selves. And so what happens when we get in that space is that we withdraw. We move away. God stays. He doesn't withdraw his love. His love doesn't diminish ever by our frailty and our stumbling and our falling. So we stop looking at the face of love. We stop gazing and seeing the love. And we move away and we isolate ourselves from love, from mercy, from grace, from God from others. Because for us, love does diminish. <laughs> we don't understand. We can't really wrap our heads around a, a God that love, has a love that doesn't diminish based on what we do. I think we really struggle with that because it does, when someone hurts you, love diminishes. You're like, I don't want, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> but for God, love does not diminish. So what happens? What's God doing? Uh, when we have withdrawn, when we've dropped our gaze, when we've isolated ourselves, when we're in our sin, in our suffering. Well, Julian says that God protects. He protects us. He keeps us safe. And he restores. With his mercy and grace and compassion, he puts us on our feet again. So... At this point in my little story, I was like, is this really true, Julia? Like, I was really wrestling with, with this concept of sin because it's quite different to the one that I grew up with. So I said to God, is this what Jesus is like? And he took me straight away to the story of the woman caught in adultery. So we're going to read it, okay? You're going to be God, Jesus. You get to be the adulterous woman. And I'm going to be the narrator. Uh, he, she only has one line, so you can. <laughs> okay. So, so Jesus, are you right? Press the button, yeah. Jesus went, and as I read this, I want you to think about Jesus. Is he protecting? Is he restoring? What's his posture with this sinner? Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He awoke early in the morning to return to the temple. When he arrived, the people surrounded him. So he sat down and he began to teach them. And while he was teaching, the scribes and Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they stood her before Jesus. I always wonder why the man didn't get brought in. Anyway. (laughs) And the Pharisees said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says in the law that we are to kill such women by stoning. What do you say about it? This was all set up as a test for Jesus. His answers would give them grounds to accuse him of crimes against Moses' law. Jesus bent over and he wrote something in the dirt with his finger. 
They persisted in badgering Jesus, so he stood up straight. Let the first stone be thrown by the one among you who has, sinned, has not sinned. Once again, Jesus bent down to the ground and resumed writing with his finger. The Pharisees who heard him stood still for a few moments. And then began to leave slowly, one by one, beginning with the older men. Eventually, only Jesus and the woman remained, and Jesus looked up. Dear woman, where is everyone? Are we alone? Did, not, did no one step forward and condemn you? Lord, no one has condemned me. Well, I do not condemn you either. All I ask is that you go and from now on avoid the sins that plague you. I'd never thought about Jesus as protector when we're in the midst of our sin. But what a beautiful picture of how he is with this woman. He protects her from the men that are ready to kill her, from her enemies, from the enemy. And then he speaks words of truth in love we trust set her on a path of restoration. I think God, and Julian says, God is our example. He shows us how to be with people when they're in sin. He's friendly. He's not angry. He doesn't blame. He doesn't shame. He shows us how to be with ourselves. Julian says, God's mercy and forgiveness are all about absorbing our anger, not his. That's one to sit with. (laughs) We can be friendly like he is with ourselves and with others. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, human. (laughs) You can be released. So, from here I have a conversation with Daz, who preached a couple of weeks ago at work, because he talks a lot about this confessing community. And I'm like, where does this come from, this idea of confessing community? And he's like, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer's your guy. And he pulls out his phone, sends me five pages of the chapter five of Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. I didn't know a lot about Bonhoeffer. Uh, But he was a German pastor and theologian and one of the earliest critics of the Nazi regime. He became involved in the Confessing Church, a movement that fought against the Nazification of the German Evangelical Church. And he was arrested in 1943 and executed in concentration camp for his views in 1945. And so his theological writings are a classic across the world. So I want to read to you the first quote from Bonhoeffer's book uh, from chapter 5 because this just took everything to another level for me. (laughs) He starts with James 5.16 and he says, Confess your faults to one another. He who is alone with sin is utterly alone. 
It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer and all their fellowship in service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal this sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners, but it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with truth and says, you're a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. Can we dare to be sin the sinners we are with each other? John 20, 23 tells us that Jesus gave his followers the authority to hear the confession of sin and forgive sin in his name. He gave us the authority to be the grace of God to each other. Not just for the sake of our healing, but so that we wouldn't be alone. And isn't isolation and loneliness the pandemic of this age? Sin isolates, it demands to have us by ourselves. It wants to remain unknown and it withdraws us from love and from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive the pain of sin will be. But when sin is expressed and acknowledged, it loses its power. Power over us individually and the community that we belong to. When sin is expressed, we're no longer alone with evil. We can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. And it's the end that's important. You know, Julian would say that we can, we need to take a good look at our failings and our faults, an honest look. But we need to then shift our gaze back to the eyes of love and not despise ourselves or others for their sin not to become overly anxious about it, but to shift our eyes back to God, who is our remedy, Jesus, who is our remedy in this world. And it's in the confession of sin, in this very act, that we find true fellowship. When I share and express the places that I miss the mark, stumble and get off course. With one of you, I share it with the whole creation, a congregation, sorry. Um, I share my burden. 
I love Galatians 6 too, where it says, carry one another burdens and in this way you will fill, fill the requirements of the law of Christ. That is the law of Christian love. So can we dare to be the sinners we are with each other? All right, we're getting near the end, so I'm going to ask Shelley to come and join me. Thanks, Shell. So I rang Shelley during the week uh, because I remember, um, yeah, just take a seat. Dave had told me about this practice in Christian surfers with the leadership called the clean team. And it was to do with confession. This was a while ago and I thought, oh, I'm going to ring Shelley and see whether she's been a part of this and whether it actually was a helpful thing for her or not. Um, so we had a phone call during the week and I said, Shell, tell me about this experience. And you shared a little bit about that and also your experience in a previous church community. And what I wanted to, to do is have you share that with everyone this morning. So you can tell us a little bit about it and what it was like for you. Um, so we have this practice at um, <clears throat> our regional Christian Surfers Conference and our uh, national conferences, so this can be three times a year, where um, it's called Clean Team and we come together, we split up and there's men, men go with men and women with women um, and it's all different ages and it's a time where we can bring um, our stuff into the light. Um, we can confess our sins together. Um, and I always, my experience of it is uh, it's really real. It's really raw. Um, and when someone is vulnerable uh, with you, I find it's a ripple effect and uh, we all become vulnerable together. Um, but I don't know if you've ever sat across from someone um, and they've confessed their sins. Um, oh, I feel there's no judgment. Um, I feel nothing but love towards that person. Um, and there's something about it that actually undoes me and it gives me permission to be real with my sin uh, and my struggles. Um, you know, and, and probably my experience with it is as, as we go around and share and people are vulnerable, um, it gets to my turn and sometimes I'm not even aware of the stuff um, or, or the sin that is there, but it gives permission for the Holy Spirit to come and just touch on stuff and I find... I'm confessing stuff or stuff's coming out without me even, in, even knowing it. Um, the real stuff, raw stuff, and what it does is um, it comes with a sense of freedom. Um, I feel free and I feel lighter. There's a lightness about it. And um, probably just to share a vulnerable experience myself with it was there was a time I was sitting in a group and the women were a lot younger than me and it, ca it came to my turn of sharing. And um, I recently had had a really raw experience of an early miscarriage and um, I was pregnant again. 
Um, but I couldn't receive this new life that was growing in me, even though I'd seen the pictures um, and there was a heartbeat in there and he was alive, she was alive and real in there. Um, and it got to my turn, I wasn't sure what to share, but God just put his finger on that and, said, and um, I was talking before I even knew what I was saying. And I had seven women just jump on me and pray for me and love on me. And I felt completely uh, free. Um, the freedom that came um, and just the love from the others and God's love and kindness and grace and mercy that met me. Um, in that time, I was more in love with him and more in love um, with the church, the, the community I was with. Mm. Thanks, Shell. Um, so Bonhoeffer talks about this connection between being open about all of ourselves, bringing all of ourselves through confession, and that having an impact on the community. So I'm wondering, how did you... Did you notice, how did, how did that, those experiences impact that community of leaders? Mm. Um, I think there, there's an instant um, love for one another um, as we share together. There's a love. Um, you know, Christian Surfers has, there's a slogan underneath that says, I found my tribe. Um, and part of finding your tribe is... Um, you know, there's the surfing aspect we have in common and um, the adventure, there's Jesus. But I find I don't find my tribe until there's this confession or this is, I can bring this part of me, I can bring my struggles. Um, it's part of bringing my whole self. Um, and for me, I find the camps um, begin in this clean time. We leave... Um, there's a sisterhood that's formed, there's a love for one another, there's family. Um, and, you know, just even coming into Easter, um, we have the National Conference and um, we have a paddle out in the morning where we, as service, we paddle out and we make a cross um, and we confess together that he's risen. Um, but for me, it's the night um, in the night, we all stand together um, around a fire and we sing, we stand united and we sing um, Amazing Grace together. After confessing our sins, we sing Amazing Grace and we sang the lyrics today. Um, it's God's grace that meets us in his mercy. Um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see we're equal. We stand equal. Um, no one higher, no one lower. They better surf and know we're equal. It's God's grace alone um, that sets us free. Beautiful. Thank you. So, I'm left with two questions after this journey God has had me on. Well, the first is really the dare from Bonhoeffer. I dare you to be 
a sinner here. This is what I sense the Holy Spirit saying. (laughs) And that's a wrestle. I dare you to be a sinner here. And the second one is, can we be the kind of people, the kind of community that doesn't put up with the sham? Can we buy the kind of community where sin and sorrow is welcome? In Celtic spirituality, they have this concept called the Anamkara, and it describes a friend or lover of the soul whose very presence calls forth what is stirring in our depths, longing to come out, who releases us into what we haven't yet been able to communicate. And it was this concept that eventually developed into confession in the Catholic Church. In Buddhism, they have something very similar and they call it the Kalyana Maitra, or the noble friend. And they describe it like this, one who will not accept pretension, but will gently and firmly confront you in your blindness, who compliments your vision in a kind, and critical way, willing to negotiate with you the awkward and uneven territory of contradiction and woundedness. Can we say and act in a way that says to each other and to the world that sin and sorrow is welcome here and that the friendliness and the love of Jesus will meet you here. So let me finish with this final quote from Julian this morning and invite you to sit into these questions as you come towards Holy Week and towards Easter. She says this, This earth is a prison. This life is a penance. And God wants us to rejoice in the remedy. The remedy is that our beloved is with us, keeping us safe and guiding us into the fullness of joy. The one who will be our bliss in the life to come is our protector when we are here. True love and unshakable trust open our way to paradise. So I'm going to pray for us, but let's just sit for a moment in silence and let that all just settle. Lord, my prayer is the same as when we started this morning. Let us see the love in your eyes. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live into these questions. This dare to be a sinner here and to break through into true community. 
that invitation that you have for us. God, we'll all be in different places with this, this message and this journey. And God, I thank you that you walk gently and kindly and slowly with us as we work it through. And so I ask, Father, that your presence would be near and that you would continue as people go from here this conversation with each of us as we move together towards uh, celebrating and reflecting and uh, being with you in your passion, in your death and in your resurrection. Amen.